Dennis O'Driscoll is one of Ireland's most widely published and respected critics of poetry. He's a former editor of Poetry Ireland Review, has published seven collections of poetry, including Weather Permitting, a 1999 Poetry Book Society recommendation that was shortlisted for the Irish Times Poetry Prize, and his latest collection, New and Selected Poems, published by Anvil Press in 2004, received a Poetry Book Society special commendation. Dennis has edited and compiled the Blood Axe Book of Poetry Quotations, and his prose writing is collected as Troubled Thoughts, Majestic Dreams, Selected Prose Writings. His awards include a Lannan Literary Award in 1999, the 2005 E.M. Forrester Award of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the 2006 O'Shaughnessy Award for Poetry. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Pleasure, Rachel. Was it a coincidence that uh, your visit here to the States lined up with St. Patrick's Day? Well, I wonder, because it's about the third time that I found myself reading in America in St. Patrick's Week. Yeah. And nobody ever says that they're inviting me because of that occasion. But I wonder. I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> I wonder if there are secret, secret motivations behind yeah. that scheduling. But I was hoping that we could get started today by having you read read a poem from um, your latest book, New and Selected Poems. I thought I'd begin with a poem, particularly given the local Ann Arbor connection with Robert Frost, with a kind of uh, mini version, Irish style of the road less taken. Roads not taken. How tantalizing they are, those roads you glimpse from car or train bisected by a crest of grass, perhaps, keeping their destinations quiet. You remember a brimming sea on the horizon, or an arch of trees in reveries of light, then a bend that cuts your vision off abruptly. Some day you must return to find out how they end. Thank you. That was poet Dennis O'Driscoll reading a poem titled Roads Not Taken. Well, you've been sort of hailed um, in Ireland and America alike as a, a poet of the contemporary day, the modern day. Uh, your your poems are claimed to uh, be very attuned to the, the subtle tragedies and comedies of our everyday lives. And I noticed in that one... Um, a little different from a lot of your other poetry. That one's not so rooted in the hustle and bustle of the city, but more in natural imagery. Is that a a prevalent theme in your work, or is that something that just surfaces once in a while? Well, I think it should surface more than once in a while, because I grew up in the countryside, away from the city, away from a town even, on a road near an Irish bog, I'm afraid. And... um, all my family were either in the farming. Both my parents grew up on farms. My father was very much involved in horticulture. So I suppose the main reason why I've tended to write less about it than I feel I ought to is because there are living poets at the moment, obviously Seamus Heaney being a famous example, who are really writing so magnificently about these themes that you feel discouraged. (laughs) So it seems safer to avoid them. So I had to kind of recreate myself by pretending to be a city person. But also, like a lot of people who grew up in the Irish countryside when I was growing up, 
you simply had to go for whatever job was available because there was a kind of economic depression at the time. And um, so I was part of that wave of migration to the city. And when I was 16, I began working in the Irish Civil Service because the notion in the economically deprived, if not depraved, times was you to get a permanent pensionable job. Those words were always ringing in your ears. <laughs> so I conformed and got to know the city. And of course, a reason why I wrote a lot about the city life was because it was so new to me. Mm -hmm. So strange to me, because the things that Aresia sometimes write about are not the familiar things, but the unfamiliar ones, because those are the ones that you see with the greatest clarity and sharpness. Mm -hmm. I can definitely sense the uh, the ways in which your experiences as a civil servant sort of wading through the bureaucracy uh, has influenced your work in many ways. Um, you mentioned that that poem you just read was sort of a spin-off of Robert Frost's um, Robert Frost poem. And I noticed in a lot of your poetry that you are not afraid to drop names of your, you know, perhaps your most admired poets. I'm not sure. But um, tell me about your influences. Who are your biggest influences in terms of your writing? I would say the biggest influences would be the poets from Middle and Eastern Europe. Um, I certainly would have great interest in American poetry, which seems very exotic to us. Mm -hmm. So you hear Americans always doing down their own poetry and looking elsewhere. See, we all do that. It's again like you grow up in the countryside, as I was saying, and you tend to perhaps write about the city. So you grow up in Ireland, and of course there are many poets in Ireland whom I admire. But there is something then about American poetry with its different kind of language, it's to us exotic kind of ways of life and glamour even. But for me, apart from the great poets of the past, and I am a great believer in constantly keeping faith with those poets, so all the time, my favourite uh, sort of older classic poets would be from the Elizabethan times. But in modern times, the ones who really influenced me hugely, at least impressed me greatly, were the poets of Central Europe. These were the poets who were, I didn't mind whether they were dissidents or not. As it happened, they were for the most part. But that wasn't really what drew me to them. It was something about the spareness of the voice, the bareness of the language, the uh, depth, really, of their search for meaning, because these were people who had lived through extraordinarily difficult times of war and the communist regimes and so on, who were oppressed both as people and as writers because of being banned and so on. But they wrote with great spiritedness, with great wit, with uh, great ingenuity, and I absolutely love their work and still do. And I suppose there would be people like Zbigniew Herbert, whose work has just been published in huge edition by Echo Press here mm -hmm. in the States. Uh, Czesław Miłosz, or Milosz, as people say, who, of course, lived in California for many years. Mm -hmm. These are almost American poets. Mm -hmm. They've been adopted with such eagerness in America as well. Um, Holub, who was a Czech poet, people like that. I was enormously impressed by, and I still regard them as sacred figures, really. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about um, what the 
what the political and social situation was uh, when you began writing. How, how old were you when you began writing poetry? Well, I would have been very young when I was playing around with language, as people tend to do. You see, the island that I grew up in, as I said, was economically poor, but you didn't really think of it that way. I mean, when you're young, everything's your youth. And I'm always taken by the fact that when I meet people from those countries I've mentioned in Central Europe, and you say to them, it must have been awful growing up there. I say, no, no, no. <laughs> we were young. We were in love. We were whatever. So you, you don't really mind that too much. But for instance, when I was growing up, the place that I grew up in, the house that I grew up in, we wouldn't have had, say, we had no running water, we had no television, we had no telephone, we had no phonograph, we had nothing like that. But you could kind of be here lamenting or keening, to use a good Irish word about that. But what would you be keening about? Because it didn't seem to us in any way deprived. We made our own fun. and um, But of course, it meant that language was much more central because we didn't really do music in our house very much. And there was no access to any art form, really. I mean, there would have been th things like opera and ballet and so on would have been utterly unknown to us. So if you were gravitating at all towards language, then language <clears throat> was a huge thing. It was ac actually the only available medium. So I read a lot and played around a lot with language, entered essay competitions, won a lot of them. Received a medal for verse speaking, which you wouldn't guess now because I'm a rather inhibited verse speaker <laughs> now, but I think I did it in a rather dramatic way when I was young. And uh, it was a school's competition that, that I won for verse speaking. And I loved also those kind of tiebreakers that you did for competitions. And I once... Um, was the envy of my school by having a tiebreaker for rally bicycles. And I won this incredibly advanced bicycle that <laughs> arrived one afternoon when I was, again, in my early teens. Uh -huh. So there was a lot of reading going, a lot of language, and a certain amount of bothering writers by writing to them as well. For instance, W.H. Auden, whose centenary is this year, I would have written to and received a lovely letter back from, and also Samuel Beckett, who sent me a book when I was a schoolboy. It's wonderful. That, that's that's incredible. Um, do you think that the importance, the importance of language that you're talking about, because of you know the situation that that you grew up in, is something that is connected to uh, Irish culture specifically? I'm I know there there's a long tradition, you know, of oral oral folklore, oral storytelling um, among the Irish. Do you think that that is related to um, sort of your deep connection to? language? I think it has to be, Rachel. It has to be somewhere because it isn't just, as you rightly say, that there is that tradition, which of course there is, but also that there is a great respect for language and for literature in Ireland. People don't think it's a freakish thing to do, to write poetry. So your colleagues now at work say they might not go out and buy a book of poems, but they don't actually mind the fact that you're a poet. Whereas I have a feeling in a lot of countries you'd have a lot of apologizing to do and a hell of a lot of explaining to do as to why you were a poet or what a, what a poet was. And I think they'd be deeply suspicious to whether you were employable at all if you were doing something as discreditable as that. So there was a great respect for it. And I think that respect was not only because of the flair for language and the pride that people take in expressing themselves, 
but also because there had been a kind of heroic connection with with language because the freedom leaders, if you want to call them that, the people who were the leaders, say, of the 1916 rebellion, the people who were the voices of the Young Irelander movement and all these kind of uh, movements for uh, Irish freedom, for nationalism and so on. I mean, one has to be kind of cautious about some of those now because so many awful things happened in the name of Irish freedom. So many people were killed and, and so on. And I think in St. Patrick's Week, if we reflect on, you know, Irish nationalism, one can take a pride in the history without feeling in any way that one has to condone a lot of the things that happened. But having said all of that, there were um, associations between the freedom of the country and a kind of freedom in the use of language as well, mm -hmm. a kind of liberate, a liberation of language and a liberation of a country that went together. And I think that did give it a status that it might not have had in another country. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and we'll be right back. Listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. I'm here today with Irish poet Dennis O'Driscoll. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about his upbringing um, in Ireland, his upbringing through the language of poetry. Um, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the connection between um, Irish folklore, uh, sort of a deep tradition of storytelling, and uh, your own personal attachment to language. I was hoping that uh, you would read us another poem from your latest book, New and Selected Poems, and this one was one that I felt, I felt was deep, deeply rooted in your uh, your attachment. It's called the hometown. Yeah, the hometown is about my hometown of Thurles in Tipperary. Everybody's heard of Tipperary, and probably nobody's heard of Thurles. But the idea of this poem, really, Rachel, was that I was thinking about the fact I hardly ever write about my hometown and I left it when I was 16 I, I've always felt that it has turned its back on me because I've turned my back on it I always feel a little disloyal when I go back because I keep in touch I buy the local paper every week I know all the gossip and all of my family virtually still lives there but I feel both when I hear a local accent, I mean, if there were a million people around, I can pick one out instantly. It's a very distinctive local accent. And I would know within a mile where everybody, you know, from around my area was. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, the poem is also about how unknown this town is because 
it's a, one of those kind of nondescript Midlands Irish towns that nobody ever visits, has no place in any tourist map, and the only foreigners you'd ever see in it would be people who stray there by mistake, usually. Mm. And um, I remember, you know, as, as a child, once there was a tour bus arrived in the town, which was a terrific uh, <laughs> novelty. And there was even um, an African <clears throat> man on, on the bus. And we'd never seen anybody like this before. It was a source of grace, great fascination to us and I'm great sure. delight, mm -hmm. great delight. I mean, we were there uh, waving and smiling and welcoming. But we just were as, oh, I don't know, we were so unsophisticated. <laughs> but <laughs> this is the hometown anyway. Our town needed no attention from the fast-talking city to boost its self-esteem, shrugged off its lack of name recognition status, the absence of an entry in the standard tourist guidebooks. Flash-flooded paddocks were the nearest we came to creating a splash. The cathedral took tame inspiration from its Pisan counterpart. Our hill quarried for silky lime would scarcely warrant a coach tour. To while away way spare time, there were sales of work in aid of foreign missionaries, mixed doubles golf competitions, Lenten plays, clay pigeon shooting tournaments, the new and capital cinemas to view films. Had your parents not exercised the hard choice on your behalf, you might not, all things considered, have settled on it as the first spot on earth you'd opt for as a birthplace. But it more than sufficed, and a bond deepened between you. You responded to its easygoing wit, its readiness to lift a hand, took pride in its sizable stadium, watched the river flee beneath the bridge like a non-stop mainline train. Hardly a day goes by that the town does not cross your mind. And though officially you've left behind the confines of its square, acquired what lawyers call new domicile, it still answers to home. And when you c cut through it now on one of those impatient trains, making hasty tracks for elsewhere, its back is turned disdainfully its garden hedges prickly, its householders otherwise preoccupied. As far as can be seen, your traitorous face, reflected in carriage glass, doesn't ring the faintest of cathedral bells, and only the family headstone is still willing to claim you unbegrudgingly as its own. You remember a town where lives seemed doomed to fail, factories to pack up, able-bodied men to bail out for England and its building sites. Now, even a nail bar thrives. The Chamber of Commerce outlook is upbeat. Any sadness you feel when leaving is on your side alone. Crocodile tears as far as the place is concerned. Yet, you always quicken to its name, emblazoned on a container truck, its accent picked out in the city crowd.
Thank you. That was Irish poet Dennis O'Driscoll uh, reading his poem titled The Hometown. I really liked that poem. I thought it was a, a beautiful poem, and I think that it is very relatable to most readers in the sense that so many of us struggle with this sort of inherent conflict between, you know, as as we grow older, we're trying to forge an identity for ourselves, often in a new place, while still remaining true, you know, to our roots and to our heritage. Yeah, I understand that fully, and that's exactly what I was trying to get at there. But it is a peculiarly Irish thing also, because the first thing everybody wants to know when they meet you is where you're from. And then they immediately begin to try and uh, find out who they know there. And at the end of the conversation, ideally, they have uh, found themselves distantly related to you, if not, uh, <laughs> if not closely related. <laughs> wow. Well, um, thanks to, um, and mostly to, you've, you've had two Nobel Prize winning poets, Irish poets. You've had Yeats and, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Seamus Haney. Um, I feel as though it was funny you mentioned earlier the way uh, the way that Irish Irish writers seem to glamorize American writers, and I feel like we almost do the same thing with Irish writers. Um, I think that Ireland has really assumed a very central place in the imagination of American poetry readers. Um, Paul Mul- Paul Muldoon just won the Pulitzer Prize. I think he's living here in America mm-hmm. now, but um, you've got. Um, sort of this pastoral image of the Irish countryside. And then, you know, there's towering figures like James Joyce. Um, you've got Yeats writing about the legend of romantic Ireland. And I think that's something that American writers really do tend to glamorize in a similar way that you were saying Irish writers tend to glamorize American poets. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. And also, I suppose you could even say that some Irish writers glamorize Ireland and they become very good at doing that and are, I suppose, not always pure in their motives. Some people know exactly what buttons to press in order Mm -hmm. to elicit the right kind of response. But then you do get writers like, say, Seamusini at the moment, whose imagination is genuinely fired by his childhood who's preserved the elements of his childhood with an astonishing purity and exactness. And so he can recreate it to the extent that you can almost delude yourself into believing it's your childhood. And perhaps even if you grew up in Australia or somewhere, it begins to be more real as part of your experience than it is um, your own. And uh, the fact that you can actually run into somebody like that on the street makes it even more kind of interesting because um, we had four stamps issued about a year or two ago of our four Nobel Prize literature winners. So it was um, the two you mentioned, but then also Samuel Beckett and George Bernard Shaw. Mm -hmm. And the fact that one of those people is still alive and in fact, James Heaney says that he is the best customer of the Irish post office because so many people write to the poor man and he's generous enough to keep writing back to them all. Uh-huh. So I think he, he, in his modest way, suggested that the stamp had been brought out by the post office as much in gratitude for all the business <laughs> he put their way as much as in recognition for the Nobel Prize. But it is true, of course, Rachel. I mean, there there has to be a kind of otherness in writing as well that that um, 
it's part of the proof that the writing is doing its work, that a real um, sense of a country is created, that what is incidental to somebody in the country itself, so you get an American writer writing, and they're simply putting in everyday detail, but that becomes reconfigured in the minds of a reader elsewhere mm -hmm. as a whole culture, as a way of life, as a kind of glamour, because you pick out these little details and they seem so wonderful and you think, gosh, you know, can you imagine having a bagel bar or imagine having a, <laughs> a post box like this where, you know, the, the mail is delivered to something outside of your house or whatever it happened to be. Some little detail. And of course, it, in the case of America, it might tie up with images people would have, like a hopper painting or a particular film or something like mm -hmm. that. And... Uh, and in Ireland, it probably would have to do with people's sense of Irish music, their um, maybe a particular image again from the cinema or something like that. So it gets all intermingled and we have each distorted uh, sense of each other's cultures, but we wouldn't want to lose those either. Mm -hmm. The distortion is part of the fun. It's almost like relationships with people. You form some kind of a, a notion of the other person. And even though it may not be quite true, you want to have your delusions as part of the package. Mm -hmm. I feel like, and you know, maybe this is just my opinion, as sort of an external external viewer of you know the Irish literary tradition but as much as the music and as much as the the pastoral scenes I feel like as Americans we we associate the Irish identity with sort of um stereotypical natural gift for the written word yeah well <clears throat> I, I suppose we're all the beneficiaries of that and the fact that Yeats was regarded by many as the greatest lyrical poet of the 20th century and that Joyce was regarded as the greatest novelist. But on the other hand, one has to be realistic about this. These were exceptional gifts. These were mm -hmm. extraordinary people. And even within Ireland, they were kind of once-off in certain respects. So I certainly wouldn't delude myself into believing that there was something in the air that I could, <laughs> could just tap into like that. On the other hand, it's both... Uh, an encouragement to have people like that, but also a certain intimidation because they set the bar so high that everything you do is going to seem very inadequate by comparison. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I hope I'm not misinformed, but um, it's my understanding that you're married to an American poet? That's right, yeah. Um, I was curious because it seems like you have, you know, through that relationship, you must have a pretty good view of what's going on in Europe, what's going on in America, and I was wondering uh, what you thought were the biggest differences between what's going on in contemporary American poetry and contemporary European poetry. Well, my wife is an American uh, Chicagoan called Julia O'Callaghan. She's published three books of poems in, for adults and three for children. And I think that the difference really has to do with informality, that the European ear is tuned much more to form to rhythm, to the iambic meter, that sort of thing. So even though I would write a lot in free verse, I'm all the time hearing the rhythm of the language, hearing the music of it, and measuring it out sometimes, almost to the point where you could actually scan the lines um, purely 
by reference to traditional meters like iambic pentameter and that. I think that's part of our education, it's part of our upbringing. Americans would tend to have a much um, freer kind of notion of the language, much more improvised. And in many ways, um, William Carlos Williams would be a more obvious father figure than Robert Frost, mm -hmm. who would seem to have closer associations in some ways with European writing. I think it's not by coincidence that Frost's first book appeared in England rather than in America. I would also say that there is now at the moment um, a love affair among younger American poets with a kind of disjunctive poem, mm -hmm. with a certain kind of what we would see as a rather obscure poem, maybe drawing on um, combinations of high and low culture, mm -hmm. a certain amount of montage, pastiche, um, but the whole thing would be an interesting mishmash of language that would not have as its purpose or as its objective to make sense as we would see it. Mm -hmm. And I, I can concede that that is a perfectly legitimate kind of poetry, but it would be a kind of poetry that I would find it difficult to respond to, mm -hmm. particularly at the emotional level. And Is that something that uh, European poets in general tend to admire, or is it something that they view as sort of a challenge to the institution of poetry in general? Well, I would say that the poets that I wore, was talking about earlier, those Central and Eastern European ones, they would see clarity as a real virtue because they would have associations um, with maybe Nazism and so on, mm -hmm. an obscure language. For instance, um, Primo Levi, the great writer of the Holocaust, he actually said that he found obscurity in, in literature um, very unwelcome because it reminded him of the prisoners that he knew in the camps being addressed in a language they didn't understand. So you'd have Italian prisoners being roared at in German. And he felt that Ezra Pound, who was a great poet and a wonderful um, literary impresario, but whose work is full of all kinds of obscurities in the cantos. Well, Primo Levi would have associated the Nazi, Nazi sympathies, which Ezra Pound sadly and undoubtedly and discreditably and unforgivably had. He would associate that obscurity in his work where he'd put in bits of old Chinese and things that he knew his readers couldn't possibly mm -hmm. understand. He would associate that with people being barked at in a foreign language by these Nazi uh, guards. That made a deep impression on me, I must say. Mm -hmm. And I've always um, tried to keep faith with clarity in myself as a kind of courtesy for the reader. But it also must be said, Rachel, that for somebody like myself, I was never inside an English department in my life. <laughs> and I have no... <laughs> No, um, I can't lay claim to the kind of erudition that may be behind some of that. So my clarity, I'm afraid, is as much a kind of ignorance as it is anything else. But I, I do genuinely think that it is a kind of courtesy to your reader, kind of good manners, not to make people feel inadequate in, in what you write. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to take one more short break. You're listening to Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back.
listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai, and I'm here with poet Dennis O'Driscoll. Uh, we were just talking a little bit about poetic clarity before the break, and um, you mentioned that you'd never set foot in an English department before, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> and it's it's amazing to me um, in the sense that you've you've been able to establish a career of significant length and breadth uh, without ever having received a traditional poetic education. And um, as much as your poems we were talking about at the very beginning of the show talk about uh, the problems we deal with uh, on a day-to-day basis, sort of the inconsistencies and the quirks that we encounter regularly, um, I also feel very strongly that there is a very significant scope to the time that you have in your poems. And I was hoping that you would read us um, a poem that is sort of playing with this idea of small scope versus large scope in time. It's called Time Pieces. I will, of course, Rachel. It's quite a long poem. So time, if I may pun, won't allow me to read all of it. (laughs) Just a couple of uh, short pieces. That's great. Um, It's actually happily anyway made up of a series of very short kind of vignettes and um, I'll just read three or four of them and see how they go. Great. Time pieces. How long a day lasts. It starts at dawn, goes on all night, right into the small hours, makes time for each minute individually. How long days take. An evening when you wait for the phone to ring, as if for a watched kettle to come gasping to the boil and sing. A week in which your lover broods the situation over. A summer marking time before exam results. The breathing space the lab requires to prove your GP right or wrong. The grandfather clock keeps time under lock and key. Counts the seconds like a miser inside walnut-panelled vaults. Its chimes disturb light sleepers, hold them in suspense until another hour's demise is hammered home. I'll end there. It reminds me of the bell tower. I've been uh, sleeping by the bell tower and occasionally hear it hammering out the hours and counting them like a miser. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, were, I actually work in the bell tower and I walked out yesterday. It was a, a gorgeous day here. Were you here yesterday? I was indeed, yeah. Was, happy to welcome the spring to Yeah, it was one of the Ann first Arbor. nice days we've had in a while and I walked out and the bell tower was playing um, It's a Small World After All, <laughs> which, um, boy, I just got a big kick out of it. But... Um, Anyways, timepieces I really I really enjoyed, as I said earlier, because I felt like it not only incorporated um, the smaller doses of time that many of your poems focus on, you know, focusing on uh, little events that happen during our days, but um, it seemed to me almost almost like a metaphor, perhaps, for the the span that your career has begun to take. And I was wondering how you feel as I mean, you're still relatively a very young poet um, for for the uh, acclaim that uh, you've achieved at this point in your life. How does how does it feel that you just had a an anthology basically of poems put out? Is that is that strange for you? Well, I suppose um, 
It was something that I'd always wanted to do, but at the same time, I am a bit surprised, but not in the least um, proud in the sense that I do have a huge sense of inadequacy about what I do. I mean, to be absolutely brutally honest about it, partly for the reasons that I mentioned earlier that I'm at close quarters to people who've done infinitely more important things, and also because I'm always deeply disappointed in the end with what I've actually done. So probably the greatest motivation for me is to try and do better the next time, to overcome what become fairly obvious shortcomings when I go back and look at it objectively. You see, when when you were introducing me, you actually said that I was known as a critic. And <laughs> my spouse, whom you mentioned earlier, <laughs> says that that's really the defining uh, my defining mark. Now, not, not, I hope, of my relationship towards her, but <laughs> my relationship towards literature and towards my own work is to be very self-critical and not in any kind of uh, self-lacerating way. I mean, that would be foolish, mm-hmm. as it would be foolish to uh, delude oneself into thinking that when we're doing something great. But literature is a very high calling. I mean, for me, a kind of ideal, really. So the great poem is always out there in the distance somewhere, something you aspire to, something that you hope accidentally you might stumble on someday. But I've never felt that I've I've got there, not nearly. And so therefore, um, the work is always pending rather than achieved. It's always in your head rather than on the page. It's always coming tomorrow rather than there since yesterday. I've got a new collection coming this year, which will be published in the States also by Copper Canyon Press. And of course, at the moment, all my hopes reside in that book. (laughs) But maybe when it appears too, I'll feel we'll wait for the next one. So probably my dying words will be the next one, the next one, (laughs) or maybe even the next life. Who knows? (laughs) Well, it's clear. It's clear that uh, your career is uh, not at a halting point and hopefully won't be anytime soon. But um, I'm curious, you're talking about the book that you just finished. Um, When you're writing, I'm curious about this as a writer myself, when you're writing poems and especially when you're compiling poems together, how do you know when a poem is finished? How do you feel when it's finished? Or how do you attempt to finish a collection of work to be a unified whole? Well, you mentioned earlier that I'd edited a book of poetry quotations, and in fact, Copper Canyon will be doing that in the States as well under the title of Coat Poet, Uncoat. And these are um, quotations which I collected personally, which you won't find in any other reference book, about 250 or 300 pages of them, all from the last 25 years. And one of the people that I quote in that, I think it's the Irish poet Michael Longley, says that whenever you write a book Uh, sorry, whenever you're writing a book of poems, you eventually write a poem that seems to belong in the next book. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of know that that book is finished. Mm -hmm. And I must say that chimes very much, uh, if I may use chimes again, as in the bell tower, (laughs) with my own thinking about it is, it's when you write something and you have a sense that it's the start of a movement in another direction that you know that that you're on the way to something else. So at that moment, you look back on what's there and you retrospectively decide that all of that somehow belongs together and that it can be wrapped up. You hold on to that new bit because it's, um, 
It's almost like the starter uh, for a sourdough loaf. You now have a starter for the next lot mm -hmm. from the old, but the old can now somehow detach itself from you and take its place in the world to be loved, loathed, or as usual, ignored <laughs> by the world, as poetry usually is. But I think that's that's really how you, how you know. Occasionally, there is a sense that um, something has completed its shape. Ideally, that would be the case, but things are very seldom as neat as that mm -hmm. in literature. And that statement made by Paul Valéry that, you know, no poem is ever completed, it's only abandoned. I think that's as true of books of poems, that one doesn't complete a book of poems, one simply abandons it. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's very true. I, I often wonder when I'm talking to um, poets and writers that I, I very much admire. Um, you know, when I find a poet or writer that I really like, I tend to consume pretty much their entire body of work in a short period of time. And I always find myself wondering about all of the things that fell by the wayside that perhaps I might have fallen in love with. <laughs> well, of course. And <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that one finds after people have died, people bring out all these posthumous uh, publications of all the things that they had been so self-critical about. But I'm not too sure about that. Again, I think one should honour the judgment of the writer. And also, there's so much literature out there that if we can deal with the published oofs, the sanctioned uh, opus of a particular poet, then I think one is doing very well without having to look for the unsanctioned. But of course, there's something subversive in the reader that likes to uh, come upon the failures of the poet and learn from their failures both how to maybe take consolation from one's own shortcomings, but also to understand a little bit more about how they worked. The most recent example, obviously, being that book of Elizabeth Bishop's work, mm -hmm. where the kind of offcuts become visible as well. And of course, it's very interesting and fascinating to see those. But I don't think we should ever mistake them for the finished, perfected work, because the perfected work, if such a thing exists, but it does exist for somebody as good as Elizabeth Bishop, exists in that realm that I'm talking about, which is separate from the woman herself, it has transcended Elizabeth Bishop to become a kind of a second or a third entity out there. And in a way, that's what literature, great literature is, is work that's almost purged and purified of its maker. It has its fingerprint, it has its the DNA of the maker, but it has come to inhabit a kind of timeless zone, which is... Uh, the realm that we as readers, I think, are most deeply addressed by, touched by, and affected by. Mm -hmm. I agree. But uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been it's been excellent having you, and um, I hope that you continue to enjoy the rest of your stay here in Ann Well, Arbor. thank you very much, and I hope nothing I said about English departments uh, suggests <laughs> that I'm not deeply honored to be in the University of Michigan and to be a guest of its incredibly uh, distinguished past and its distinguished present as a, a 
an institution and as a creative writing faculty as well. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. We've been thrilled to have you. Thanks also to our engineer, Chaz Barrett, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. My name is Rachel Harkai, and you've been listening to The Living Writers Show. Show archives are available as podcasts on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store online and search for Living Writers. Stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The Daily Sports Report. Michigan with the ball at the Michigan State 21-yard line. Three wide receivers, two far, one near. Henny under center. He'll drop back to pass. Looks for Edwards in the end zone. Jump ball. And it is caught by Braylon Edwards. Braylon Edwards in the back of the end zone. Gets the touchdown for the Wolverines. And the comeback is almost complete. Hello, hello once again, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. I'm Mike Rorty. I'm here with two lovely ladies, Cheryl and Sheila, and uh, Ted's stirring the drink behind the glass there. And uh, we we will start off with Michigan uh, Report by Sheila, and go ahead and fire at me. Thank you. Uh, Big news today in football. Um, Lloyd Carr announced that, or did he announce? He never really says anything straight out. Mm, but um, that's job. <laughs> Adrian Arrington, Carlson Butler, and Eugene Germany have been suspended yeah. and possibly taken off the team. We have a little recap for you of a 